All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So glad to see you here on a beautiful Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. Oh, man. It is, it is such a, a, a blessed day. Man, this is, I look at Easter Sunday as, for a lot of reasons, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's that day when I just picture Satan walking around going, ah, my cunning plan came together. Look, he's all sealed up in the tomb. And then the next moment he's like, oh, no. Here it comes. I love it. I love thinking about it in that aspect because really, at its core, that is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ is about. It is about the triumph of light over dark. It is about good over evil. It is about Jesus' triumph over the grave. Everything that the devil thought he had dominion on, every plot, every scheme that the devil thought he was, was manipulating and controlling, Jesus rose and overcame all that, and he did that for us. So that is why I am just so absolutely blessed to get to share this message with you today. So welcome to our visitors. If you're new here, if you're out there online, wherever you are, whenever you hear this message, um, I just hope that you, that you get a message that just gives you life. So many times we think of the, of the tomb, especially around Easter. We talk about the, the crucifixion and the tomb and the, and the darkness and all these sorts of things, and it can be... It can be a heavy message sometime, but I want to tell you that this is so much more than that. Yes, there is that absolute aspect, but Jesus Christ, his death on the cross did so much for us that we will never be able to wrap our minds around, but even more so using us through his Holy Spirit, using us to continue the fight and continue doing damage to all the plots and schemes of the enemy. That authority in Christ given to us through the resurrection is what allows us to walk through this world and spread the gospel of Jesus for the glory of God. And that all happened on the cross, and it all was consummated in the tomb. Now, the story we know continues. There's so much more that goes on in the world until Jesus returns, and that history is finally then consummated but we see the cross and we see the empty tomb as mileposts of just knowing things are working exactly as God said they were going to work. And that's why I love this message. So welcome again. If you are a visitor here or new or maybe it's your first time, there's going to be a lot of scripture. And for those of you who have been here and been coming, you know what I mean when I say that. I will read many of them to you. Um, especially today, there's a lot where I'm going to read it to you. If you want to jot down the scripture or try and follow along, you're welcome to do that. We'll put some up on the screen. But I believe that scripture comes first and foremost. I believe that it's, it's my job to take the scripture and make sense of it. But you're going to know scripture when you leave here. And that's my, that's my job, and that's what we believe here. So you're going to get a lot of Scripture. So let's get into it. We're looking at, again, it's called a light out of the darkness. And so we're looking at the resurrection of Christ as, as a bringing of light, a triumph of light over the darkness in the world. This world seems like today that it's just barreling faster and faster towards darkness, doesn't it? It just seems that way. But when we go back and we look at history, we see... It's been that way since the very beginning. What we're going through today might look different, but it really isn't different. It's all just different attacks uh, of things that the enemy is trying to manipulate and just the result of a fallen world. 
The fallen world we live in looks different than the fallen world that they lived in 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, but really at its base, it's the same. And that's why we can look at Old Testament Scripture and see how we have these promises, these mileposts, I call them, along the way to say, God promised this, God was faithful there, he delivered there. And if we see that play out over and over again, then we can look at things like the book of Revelation, and we can say, we win in the end. And we can say that with confidence, knowing that everything that God has ever promised us has come true time and time and time again. Everything that was prophesied, every word of God has come true exactly as he said it would. And that gives us confidence to move forward. We can then step into the battle knowing we're equipped to fight that battle. And we're ultimately going to win that battle. So all that just to set this up. We're going to go, I'm going to do a quick recap. So again, if you're new here, I know Easter is a time when we have a lot of visitors. So just a quick recap. We've been in this series for, this is our fifth week. And if you've missed any of them, you can go back to our website uh, or Facebook or YouTube and catch the previous ones if you'd like to do that. But I'll give you a quick recap. In the first week, we talked about how just this is a world in darkness and it's desperate for a savior. And it has been, again, since the beginning of time, it has been. And Jesus came to bring that light. The second week, we talked about the light in the form of a Messiah, in the form of Jesus Christ, had been promised and had been prophesied since the beginning of time. And yet, when he came into the world, they missed him. Many missed him, that is. Because he didn't look like they thought this warring, conquering, kick-butt Messiah was going to look. Right, I said kick butt on Easter Sunday in church. That's what they anticipated the Messiah was going to look like. And Jesus Christ, the suffering, meek, servant Messiah, did not fit that. And so a lot of people missed that. Then the third week, we looked at some of the reasons why the gospel message of Christ is often very offensive. It's often seen as offensive. It's seen as offensive and narrow-minded and very, very one-way, my way or the highway kind of a thing. And we, we talked about why that is and then why many people then would just flatly reject that message. And then last week we heard the story of Jesus Christ giving himself up, literally giving himself up to torture, to crucifixion, to ridicule, and then ultimately death on the cross, he gave himself up to that. And as I said at the beginning, I just picture Satan going, yeah, my, my plan's coming true. Look, everybody fell in line and they all did their part. And here's the Messiah being put up on the cross and crucified and then put away in a tomb. That's what he thought. But make no mistake about that. That was no victory for Satan. That was no triumph of darkness over light. Satan and those who partner with him pridefully discount the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God means that God is, number one, he's omniscient. He's always known how things would turn out. He's known the decisions you would make. He's known the decisions you wouldn't make, the things you would do, the things you wouldn't do. He's known that from the beginning. Now, does that mean he's manipulating those things? No. We all have free will, but the enemy knows that too. The enemy says, I'm going to whisper to you, and I'm going to lie to you, and I'm going to manipulate you into doing what I want you to do 
often in opposition directly to what we know we ought to, but we do it anyway. <clears throat> so it was no victory. The sovereignty of God had this all preordained. In fact, our first scripture, John 10, 18, Jesus himself says, no one has taken it away from me, it meaning his life, but I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back. This commandment I received from my father. Now, he spoke this in front of a group of Pharisees, Pharisees who very much knew scripture and they were very well versed in the law. They must have thought he was either crazy or he was a demon or delusional or just strictly a fool. Who knows exactly what they thought? But church, the word of the cross is not foolishness. And it is not just a made-up story to make people feel good. To those, scripture says, for those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. And that's why we take so much time to make sure, especially churches all over the world now are, are explaining the cross and the resurrection and the empty tomb, explaining those things because that idea of resurrection, of Jesus' triumph over death in the grave, that is core, that is key and foundational to our belief as Christians, to our faith. Because if it wasn't for that, then every domino starts to tumble. And what do we have left with our faith other than just a whole bunch of really good ideas and good wisdom that's in the Bible? It is so much more and so much more powerful than that. But so, again, at a time in history where I think Satan and his demons must have been high-fiving each other and, and saying, look, look how much we've, we've won, and probably no different today. Today, that happens all the time. Satan thinks, look, I got another one. Look, I got another one. Look, I lied to another one. Look, I'm manipulating another one. Satan's spending an awful lot of time high-fiving over these earthly winds. But we trust in a Savior who has promised us. And we trust in a God through his word who has promised us that in the end, we win the war. We don't fear the dark then. We, in fact, celebrate the light, the light of Christ. That's why we're here today. So today on Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate the empty tomb. As the sign says, he is risen. He is risen. Triumph over the grave. We can trust in those promises of God because time and time again, he's left us these mileposts. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to read through, some will be on screen, some will read to you the story of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ in Scripture, and I'm going to contrast those in some cases with Old Testament prophecy, sometimes 500 years before Christ, sometimes 700, sometimes even more than that, where God knew that this was going to happen, and he left us his word so that we can compare and say, he said it was going to happen, and it did. And that should give us comfort. That should give us power and strength to walk through the world. But even more than that then, we're going to talk about how when Christ died, it was so much more than just his light being snuffed out. Through that, through his death and resurrection, then became the Holy Spirit, or came the Holy Spirit. And into us then, we each carry that light of Christ into the world. We're going to get there in a minute. But let's go back to the story then. So let's go back just a little bit before... Let's back up from where we left off last week, that is, where the sky literally darkened. Jesus was on the cross. The sky literally darkened at the sixth hour. 
So before that, prior to that, Jesus was mocked, spat upon, beaten, whipped. Roman guards were making fun of him, saying, hey, if you're king of the Jews, in fact, here's a scripture, John 19, 1 through 3. So Pilate then took Jesus and had him flogged. Okay, any of you who have seen Passion of the Christ or have seen anything, you know that that word flogged is much more than just that little sanitized word that we read. It was a horrible thing that he did to him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and placed it on his head and put a purple cloak on him. And they repeatedly came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and slapped him in the face again and again. This is not the Messiah that the disciples were expecting to see. Now that very act right there was shadowed by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before that event. So 2,700 years ago, basically right now, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, the prophet says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from the insults and spitting. We just have these little shadows of these things happening back then that at the time, 700 years before, I doubt those people had any idea what Isaiah was talking about. Those things, church, were left there for us so that we can look back and see how this comes together. Then, after that event, Jesus was paraded as a spectacle along what's called the Via Dolorosa. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you can actually walk through and see the places where these things happened. It's called Via Dolorosa, translates as the sorrowful way, and literally it's just a, a pathway through the city of, or the town of Jerusalem where Jesus actually carried the very instrument of his suffering. Then Matthew 27, 33 to 36, I'll read this one for you. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine mixed with bile to drink. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink it. Let me explain that really quick. Something mixed with bile, it was probably uh, myrrh or some other herb that was in there that made it bitter tasting. Jesus recognized it immediately. This isn't just water. This is something that's going, it's a narcotic, it's a painkiller. It's something that's going to separate me from the reality of what's happening. And Jesus wanted to be 100% present. That's why he, he denied that. Verse 33, uh, verse 35 that is, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. Matthew 27, 37, the next verse on screen. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Obviously, just a mocking comment. They didn't really think that he was king of the Jews. Quick note, really quick, on, on Golgotha. A lot of times, people have this um, little confusion over Golgotha, place of the skull, Calvary. Wait, I thought... I thought Jesus was buried on Calvary or was crucified on Calvary, and we have the image of the three crosses up there. Just so that you know, Golgotha is Aramaic for place of the skull. That's literally what Golgotha means. And it translates into the Latin, which was later in the King James Version. It became Calvary. Technically, it's Calvary locus, which is it's the same word in Latin. So Calvary, Golgotha, place of the skull is all the same thing. Let me give you a quick picture. This is what it looks like. In modern day times, now, modern day, this is, this is quite a few years ago, but you can almost, now if you use your imagination, right up in this area right here, you can kind of see a couple eyes. Now, over the time, over the years, erosion has happened, but that is the area they call the place of a skull. 
It's literally just to just outside the walls of Jerusalem. You can stand on the old walls of Jerusalem and look out and see that. Right now, there's a bus parking lot over here on the right. How, how little they revere some of those things there. Um, but that's, that's what it looked like. Let me see a map right here, just a quick map so you can get your mind around it. If we have that map, I don't know how well that translates online, but you can see the temple, the walls of Jerusalem. So the praetorium is where Jesus starts out in his march on the Via Dolorosa, and it rolls all the way over here to Golgotha. It's just outside, literally just outside of the walls of Jerusalem. So it's right there. Let's continue in Scripture here. Luke 23, 46. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And having said this, he died. Now that is shattered in Psalm 31, 15, or 31, 5, where David says, Into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord, God of truth. So Jesus is quoting what David had said all that time earlier when he says that. And as if that weren't terrible enough, now if that weren't uh, humiliating enough to be spat on, to be called names, to be laughed at, to be mocked, all these things in death, even in death, it wasn't dignified for Jesus. See, they were coming up on the festival of Passover, and the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership there, could not allow this spectacle of Jesus to interfere with their Passover celebration. There were both laws against it and then practical things. We don't want people focusing on these bodies up on the hill. So they had to take Jesus down off the cross pretty quickly to get that away so that they could then have their Passover celebration. That's talked about John 19, 31 to 33. Now then, since it was the day of preparation to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews requested of Pilate that their legs be broken and the bodies be taken away. Let me explain that really quick. If you didn't die quickly enough on the cross during crucifixion, they would come and they would break your legs. The result of that would be that you could no longer try and hold yourself up so you could breathe. They would break the bones in your legs so that you would sag down and thereby you would literally suffocate. So they would do that routinely if you didn't die quickly enough. I know that's dark, but it's the truth. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. Remember, there were two criminals who were crucified along with Jesus. But after they came to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Wasn't necessary. This is foretold again, prophesied about in Psalm 34, 19 to 20. The afflictions of the righteous are many, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, this wasn't strictly an accident either. It wasn't just like, hey, look, that lines up with that. The law spoke, given to Moses all the way back on Sinai, the the law spoke to the treatment of the Passover lamb. It was very, very specific. And as we know, Jesus is is the type of the Passover lamb. Mark 15, 44. Now, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. Pilate needed to make sure that he was dead. John 19, 34, on screen here we have it. Yet one of the soldiers, we've all heard this scripture, many of us have anyway, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. 
Okay, so if it wasn't enough to be crucified and, and it looks like you're dead, some people think maybe he just passed out and wasn't entirely dead. Well, he had a spear thrust into his side and out came a mixture of blood and water. Now, if those of you who like to study this stuff out, it's actually a medical condition. It's called effusion, where in a dead body, the, the, your blood separates. It wasn't literally water. It was probably combination of water and plasma, but it separated because he was dead. What this does is it medically proves, knowing what we know about science today, that Jesus was dead. Bodies don't just do that when you've passed out, plus having the spear thrust into his side. Zechariah, prophet Zechariah, 500 years before the crucifixion of Christ, warned that they were going to regret what they had done. Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour out on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of pleading, so that they will look at me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him like one mourning for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So Zechariah warned, this is going to happen, but you're going to realize at some point what you've done, and you will mourn for what you've done. So, so it was not to be a distraction, again, and break the law of the celebration. Jesus was taken down from the cross and immediately put into a tomb. Now, oftentimes, they would take these criminals. They, uh, they didn't have money. They didn't have status or anything. Most of them didn't have any land. And they would just take them, and they would dump them in a cave, literally, and then seal the cave with a rock so that animals couldn't get in there. But it didn't happen that way with Jesus. Mark 15, 42 and 43. When evening had already come, since it was a preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who was himself also waiting for the kingdom of God. I'll talk about that in a second. And he gathered up courage and went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Arimathea was a place, Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea was a place about 20 miles or so, um, kind of north west of Jerusalem. That's where Joseph was from. It's also where the prophet Samuel was born, for those of you who like Bible trivia. Joseph of Arimathea, it says here, was a member of the council. The council is the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish, Jewish high court. Okay, so he held a place of prominence in, in Jewish religion and in Jewish law. And for him to have anything to do with this Christ was risky. It was risky for him to admit it. That's why he said he had to summon up his courage and do this. But it says, who himself, who was himself also waiting for the kingdom of God? Meaning, if we look in the subtext there, he knew Christ and he knew Christ was the Messiah. And that's why he went, that's why he went out of limb here and put himself at risk. Matthew 27, 59, 60. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb. Meaning Joseph had enough money and status and power to have a tomb set aside for him. That was going to be his, his burial place. And he took the body, wrapped it in cloth, laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut out of a rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Now that also was foretold in Old Testament Scripture by Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 9. And his grave was assigned with wicked men. That's that mass grave of criminals that I told you about. That was the plan. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. That's Joseph. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Meaning Joseph of Arimathea saw this man 
This man is not acting like anyone else would. He's not crying out in pain. He's not trying to resist what's happening to him. He must be the Messiah. We have a couple pictures here really quick to show you. This is kind of an image of what sort of the tomb would have looked like. You got the big giant rock. So what they would do, they would put the body in the tomb, which was literally just carved into the rocks. And this, this uh, rock here was on a little ramp, and it would roll down. So once you put the body in there, you would roll it down. One or two men could do that. But getting it back up the hill to get back in was impossible, virtually impossible without equipment and, and help. So that's kind of what it looked like. Here it is today, though. That's just a kind of an image of what it would have looked like. Let me see the next picture. This is what I believe. This is right outside the walls of Jerusalem again, and it's right below the hill of Golgotha. That is what I believe is the tomb of Christ. That's what traditionally they say that it is. That is the tomb. Now, obviously, the, the rock has gone. It's disintegrated. But you can go there to the garden tomb. And in fact, you can even go into the garden tomb. If you've never had a chance to go to Israel, I want to really, really encourage that if you ever get the chance. So moving on, to, present, to prevent any embarrassment. In other words, the body being stolen or the body out and paraded around. The tomb is secured by guards. And here's how that's described in Matthew, Matthew 27, 62 through 66. Now on the next day, that is the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, they went to Pilate and they, and they said this, Sir, we remember that when the deceiver, Jesus they're calling him, when the deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I am rising. Therefore, give orders for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. They're anticipating what might happen here, just not how it would happen. And the last deception will be far worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the tomb secure with the guard sealing the stone. So I don't have a picture of it, but they would actually go and put chains on it and put a big wax seal on it. So if that seal was broken, they would know immediately. Now, they knew, the Pharisees knew, in their hearts I believe they knew that this Christ was the Messiah, but they couldn't let themselves admit it. Paul said later, now remember, Paul used to be Saul, and he was a Pharisee. So he was very well versed in Scripture. Old, scripture would have been Old Testament, what we call Old Testament to them. He was very well versed in this, and he knew the Scriptures relating this. And he quoted it several times. And, and Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The scriptures he's talking about, there's many, many of them, but a couple of them here. Psalm 16:10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. Meaning you'd put you in the in the tomb and you would just slowly decay in the tomb. But that's not going to happen here. And then Jonah, we see Jonah in the belly of the whale. That is a shadow of Jesus being resurrected. And that's it. And the Lord designated a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. These are all, and there's all those little foreshadowings of Christ raising from the tomb all through Scripture here. But still, somehow, they were all surprised when they went back and found the tomb empty. Now, this is a quick, just a quick picture of what it looks like from inside the tomb. See if we have that. He is not here, for he is risen. 
As I said, you go there, you can actually go inside the tomb, and that's a little sign that's on the door that you can see. This is a real place, and real things happen there, just as Scripture said that it would. This isn't all just imaginary and like, hey, that's a cool story. This really happened, and there is power in that. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 8. Let me just read this section to you, so bear with me. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began down towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, how'd you like to be known as the other Mary? I don't even get, I don't even get my, my real name. Came to look at the tomb. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook from fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was laying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly for fear and great joy and ran to report to his disciples. Now, interesting thing about this, and I'm going to point this out because it can be a stumbling block sometimes for people. The gospel accounts, all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all differ slightly in the way that they portray what happened. Specifically, like in this case, for example, the, the women. Was it women? Was it, they all agree that it was women. How many? Was it just Mary and the other Mary? Was it several women? How do we know? And they all kind of differ slightly. I'm going to explain to you why that is. They can all be reconciled, though. We have a class we're going to be talking about probably in the, in the next upcoming weeks called Bedrock, where we get together, and, I, and it's an eight-week series. Um, and we just talk about how we know for a fact that all these things happen. The Bible is real, true, and authentic, and these things really did happen just as the way Scripture says. So watch for that. We also have in the back of the sanctuary, as you came in the front, um, a bunch of books called The Case for Easter. If you're one of these people who's like, did the resurrection really happen? I know what the pastor's saying, but did it really We've got those books back there. If you would like one or you know somebody who would, because uh, please take it. Please take it. I don't want them just sitting there left over. I'd love them all to be gone. But the power of the resurrection is key to our faith. So if you struggle with that or know somebody who does, please take one of those books. But let's go on. I'll, I'll give you some examples. Matthew 28, 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, as I said, came to look at the tomb. In Mark, Mark 16, 1, says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Luke, Luke 24, 10, says, Now these women were Mary Magdalene, Joanna is another one, Mary the mother of James, and also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So there's many, many women there. And then John says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already removed from the tomb. So that makes it seem like it was just her. But they can all be reconciled depending on your point of view. It does not mean um, that there's any inaccuracy in those things. So that kind of raises a question sometime. Why are there four Gospels anyway? 
Has anybody ever thought of that? Gospels are the good news of Christ. Three of them are called the synoptic gospels, meaning they're all telling the same story from the same point of view. Why does there have to be four? Anybody ever thought about that? There are four because each gospel was written to emphasize a particular aspect of the message that they were trying to get across. Let me explain how that works real quick. Matthew, the book of Matthew, was written to a Jewish audience with an emphasis on the royal priestly bloodline of David. Okay, so Matthew starts out with kind of a genealogy. Let's establish right now that he has descended from David. That's, how my, that's kind of Matthew's point here. Mark was written to a Gentile audience, right? These weren't Jews primarily, and focuses on the miracles, the teachings of Jesus, the practical things. It doesn't go into a lot of prophecy or a lot of history or a lot of theology that that audience wouldn't necessarily have have resonated with. Now, Luke, the Gospel of Luke was written to a a slightly more, because Luke was a doctor, a slightly more educated and maybe worldly audience is a better way to put it. He provides a lot of proof, a lot of interviews with eyewitnesses, and, and it's really kind of a factual, like, let's document how this happens. Luke is the one I go to when I want to see really the order that kind of things happened in. John was written, to paraphrase his own words, to inspire faith in Jesus as the Son of God. So they're all telling the same story, okay, but they're telling it from the viewpoint of what they're trying to establish in that gospel. That's why there's four gospels. I just point this out because that can be a stumbling block to people sometimes. Why does it just say Mary when this one says there's others? People get caught up in those things. What we need to know when the women, however many and whoever they were, when they arrived, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. We know that because all the Gospels exactly document that aspect of it. Now, how did the disciples, so the women came. First of all, the fact that it was just women coming and made this discovery, women then were the very first ones to tell of the good news of the resurrection of Christ. So any of you who have trouble with women teachers, they were used in a powerful way right here. They were the very first to carry that gospel message. Now, when the women saw it and they carried it back to the rest of the disciples who were mostly men, okay, still some women mixed in, but when they were, they were mostly men, how did they respond to the good news? Did they go, did they go, oh, we knew it. Did they go, oh, we knew. That's exactly how it was supposed to happen. So yeah, duh. No, that is absolutely not how it happened. Luke 24, 11, but these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe the women. <clears throat> Seriously, guys, you guys, Jesus spent time walking with you, explaining to you in detail how this was going to happen, and you didn't think to like, okay, I don't know how it works, but he said he was going to rise from the dead, so let's go hang out there and see how it happens. No, they just go back to their place and they're eating and they're chatting about, hey, was that crazy what just happened? When the women come in, they have a hard time even believing what they know to be true. So moving from that now, Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ, appears to enough people in enough situations to where we know that all the theories about mass hallucination, about uh, you name it, there's a million theories on on how that, you know, in a worldly way, people could have thought that they saw Christ. There were so many documented 
instances of this. A couple of them from Scripture I'll share with you. Mark 16, 12 and 13 says, Now after that, meaning after the resurrection, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking down on their way to the country. And they went away and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Mark 16, 14. Later, he appeared to the 11 disciples themselves as they were reclining at a table. And he reprimanded them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. How long did it take for them to go to, you're our Messiah, we're with you, we're with you, to, no way. No way did that just happen. It's human nature. Because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen from the dead. These women came in and they told you, and you still didn't believe them. Now, 20 years later, with maybe a little bit of benefit of some hindsight, Paul, the Apostle Paul, documented this in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Listen to the way he puts it. For I handed down to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures are not the Bible we have now. It's all Old Testament prophecy that that he's talking about there. And that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, again, in according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom, get this, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep, meaning died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. The fact that he says most of whom remain now, mean at the time that Paul wrote that, most of the 500 that witnessed Jesus at this one time were still there. So if Paul said, that was Jesus, that was the Messiah, he rose from the dead, and any of these 500 said, eh, I don't think so. I think that was an imposter. I think that didn't happen. I think he just made that up. One of them would have come forward because they were alive at that time. This isn't documenting something after the fact. This is real time. It happened. Paul said it. Nobody refuted it because they saw it happen. Now, Jesus, in this time where he comes back, he instructs his disciples to meet him at this specific place and received instruction and direction. Anybody know what direction he gave them at that time? Hmm? Quite possibly. Here's what it is, though. We call it the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I've commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he comes back, he gives them those words, and then he ascends into heaven. Luke 24, um, 50 to 53 says, and he led them out as far as Bethany. So he leads them out after telling them instructions, leads them out to Bethany. He lifts up his hands and blesses them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Now, that's a fantastic story, but it doesn't end there. This is where we come in. The gospel of Jesus doesn't end there. The Old Testament prophet Joel kind of describes how this happens in, in the day of the Lord. Now, again, this is hundreds of years before Christ. Joel 2, 28 to 32. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit onto all mankind. 
And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. He gives us this picture. And that process began on the day of Pentecost. Okay, And we know that happened. Let me read you the little um, synopsis here of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, they, the disciples, all hanging out together in one place, probably talking about what are we going to do, how's this going to work, what, what do we do now? And suddenly, a noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues that looked like fire appeared on them, distributing themselves, and a tongue rested on each one of them. Here's kind of a painting Nobody was there, by the way, but this is just kind of a painting, sort of what it might have looked like. It says tongues of fire literally coming down and resting on each one of them. Those tongues of fire was the Holy Spirit coming down. That's what on, on May 23rd, which is actually when we celebrate Pentecost, that's what many call and I call the birth of the church because that's when the Holy Spirit of God was poured out onto them. In Jewish tradition, Pentecost was a, it was a harvest festival. It was where the first fruits of the harvest, and it happened right during harvest. They would take the first fruits and have, and it was only one day. Most Jewish festivals, harvest festivals or otherwise, were, were weeks. This was a one day because they couldn't afford to ignore the harvest any more than the one day. So they would take the first fruits from the harvest, and they would have this festival and, and dedicate it to the Lord. Leviticus 23 talks about that. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall present a new grain offering. That's just the description of how that works. And this old covenant offering of a sacrifice to God then had been replaced with a new covenant promise of Christ, which is a great gift from God poured out into this, this first fruits of the Holy Spirit into believers of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.5 says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. So the question then comes in my mind, why was this gift, this great gift, why was it even given? Why was it necessary? Why? Why? It's easy to look back and say, so that we could go and make disciples, so that we could be equipped to go do what Christ had called us to do, yes, but really why then? And the answer is often overlooked, and it's simply to glorify God. This happened. The crucifixion, the resurrection of Christ happened so that we could receive the Holy Spirit, and by that, we could glorify God in everything we do, in everything we say. That's what our role on earth is. Ephesians 1, 11 to 14 says, In him we also have obtained, obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things in accordance to the plan of his will. That's God, right? But listen to how many times it says the reason. To the end that we were the first to hope in the Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also have, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the first installment of our inheritance in regard to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. We were given the Holy Spirit so that we could praise God in his glory. We were put here to glorify God. And so Jesus then had to leave 
them behind. They didn't want Jesus to go. He tried to tell them, John 16, 7, but I tell you the truth, it is your advantage that I am leaving. For if I don't leave, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is way before the crucifixion, and he's telling his disciples, look, I'm leaving. And they were begging him not to go, and he said, look, if I don't go, you won't receive the Spirit. They probably couldn't have understood it at the time, but he was trying to tell them. Luke 16, verse 12 and 13, I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them at the present time. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And it goes on. The question, though, are you like the disciples and like maybe I would have been if I was there? You would have been confused a little on what this all meant. I know I read it, and I like, if I was there in that place in time, I would have gone, I don't know what you're saying, Jesus, but okay, whatever you say. But remember our guiding scripture for this series, the one where we get the name, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what it's about. The purpose, our purpose in this world is not, unfortunately, to live a happy, comfortable life. We're promised that it will be just the opposite, in fact. Our purpose is to glorify the Creator. We're put on this earth not for our own pleasure, but to glorify God. We are given life and breath in order to glorify God. We are given children and everything that we have in order to glorify God. That's why we're here. And ultimately, we're given the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in the light, so that we can glorify God. Remember at the beginning how I defined the light and the dark? Beginning of the series, that is, not today. Darkness is a state of ignorance, either willful or circumstantial, that leads to walking the sinful path that leads to death and the bondage to things that come to it. But the light is a state of spiritual awakening, whereby sin and wickedness has no place to hide because it has been exposed to the truth of Christ. That's how I define those things. And Jesus said in John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world so that no one who believes in me will remain in darkness. Jesus Christ was a single point, a blindingly bright, glorious point of light into a dark world. But through the gift of the Holy Spirit, those who are called sons and daughters of God will become many points of light many points of light. That is both our gift and our reason for being. So to conclude all this, to wrap it up, Satan thought that he had snuffed out the light in the tomb and sealed it with a rock. But Jesus overcame death in the grave, escaping the tomb that was meant to hide his glory forever. And when he rose, he gave us his spirit, which put his light into all of those who believe in him. So in in Typical God fashion, he took this thing that the enemy intended for evil, this enemy, that the enemy thought he had accomplished, and fashioned it into a weapon that Satan could never have imagined. Ultimately, the single powerful light of Christ was multiplied into tens, then hundreds, then thousands, then millions, then generations, and then into you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if he is your Lord and Savior, you carry that light. You carry the light of Christ. And the question then is, will you glorify God with the light in you or will you be complicit in allowing darkness to creep in? 
The reward for that is great, but so are the consequences. Church, once you have heard the gospel of Christ, you can't sit on the fence anymore. You can't sit on the sidelines and say, I don't have a role to play in this because you have the light in you. Are you going to shine that light in those places in the world that desperately need the light? Whether that's your workplace, your school, the most evil place you can think of, that's the place that needs the light the most. Are you going to let your light shine there? Or are you going to stay on the sidelines and thereby allow darkness to creep? Jesus is literally waiting for your answer. Now, here's where it becomes a choice for us. If you don't know Christ, you don't carry the light. And I hope that I have done a good job explaining why you would want to follow this guy, Jesus. How he is a real human being, all God, but all flesh, who was crucified willingly for you and was risen from the dead in triumph over the grave. That's who Jesus is. And he invites you to follow him and to become a point of light in a world that needs it. We can talk about in other messages other days about your personal salvation, the things that we gain from that. And those things are all valid things, but that's not why we're here. We're here to glorify God. And you have a choice to make. Jesus says this, Revelation 3, last book of the Bible, verses 20, 21. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. The one who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. Church, we literally think about that. Have you ever been, I remember when I was younger, it happened all the time, there were more door-to-door salesmen. Have you ever been in your house and a salesman knocks on the door and you hide in your own home? I'll go up and I'll peep through the peephole to see who's there, but I'm really quiet because I don't want to hear them, I don't want them to hear the floor creaking so they know I'm, somebody's in there. Church, that's the image I get of Jesus standing outside our house. Are we going to hide and pretend that he's not there waiting for us? Or worse yet, are we going to leave and literally have to push past him to get out into the world without acknowledging his presence? And if we do that, we choose separation from God. It's a choice. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? This is... By the way, sometimes this is called, this can be called the sinner's prayer. And whether you know Christ or whether you don't know him, he invites you right now to say this prayer, and it's very straightforward. And there's nothing, it's not a formula, but it should come from your heart. So, Lord, I admit that I am a sinner. I need you, and I want your forgiveness. I accept your death as the penalty for my sin and recognize that your mercy and grace is a gift you offer to me because of your great love, not based on anything I have done or could ever do. Lord, cleanse me and make me your child. By faith, I receive you into my heart as the Son of God and as my Savior and as the Lord of my life. From now on, I want to live for you. Help me to live for you. I want you in control, and I want to give control of my life to you. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Amen.
hey, we're going to take communion together now. If you're new here and you came in, on the table in the back, we have a small little single-serve cups. You can grab one of those. If you're out there online, you can get whatever you have. And if the worship team would like to, I don't know if you guys got your hands full, if you want to celebrate communion with us, join in there. Whatever you have, whatever you have, it's not the elements that are important. It's the significance and what they mean. So whatever you have, I believe that this moment, this moment of triumph over the grave, that's when the last Passover feast became the new covenant promise of Christ. It's that moment when our Passover lamb gave it all for us. Matthew 26 says, Now they were eating, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is being poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If this is the first time that you have ever done that, if this is the first time you've ever said, Jesus, I need you in my life. We have prayer team at the back. They would love to pray with you. We have books in the back. We have a New Believers Bible. We have the Case for Easter books. We have plenty of resources if you're back there. And I myself will be walking around. If you have questions about what just happened to you, come see me. I clearly remember when it happened to me and I had so many questions. If you're out there online and the same thing, congratulations, it's the most amazing thing that will ever happen in your life. Hit us on the chat boards and let us know and we will pray for you. And if you need us to get you any of that information, we will get it into your hands. We want you to experience the fullness of Christ. And I, for one, praise him on a day when he is risen. Amen? Thank you, guys.